0: If you have your Bibles, if you would open with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 16, this morning, and we pick up where we left off in verse 17 with a message entitled Preventing Division, Romans 16. And if you're joining us for the first time, God bless you. We're so glad that you're here. And here at Calvary Chapel, we make our way through the Bible. We've already been through it one time. It took us 12 years, but we made it. And so now we're on our second time through. And if you're here for the first time, we are, we're just completing another book. So welcome. You came at a great time. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Shall we pray together? Father, we do thank you this morning for your truth, Lord, your truth that sets us free, Lord, we realize that in this world, your word says that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of those lest they believe. Lord, open eyes today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As the epistle to the Romans comes to its conclusion, the Apostle Paul adds a final word of caution concerning the danger of division. Many similar warnings are found throughout the New Testament for division through the means of subtle and subversive false teaching confronted the early church from the very beginning. And even today, the threat of false teaching remains. For where there is light, darkness will seek to eclipse it. And where there is truth, Lies will attempt to conceal it. And where there is unity, division seeks to destroy it. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. In writing to the church in Colossae, Paul gave a similar warning when he said, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. In John's epistle, 1 John chapter 4, John said, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then the apostle Paul in addressing the elders there on the shores of Miletus, he said in Acts chapter 20, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. All of these warnings given throughout the New Testament. And here in Romans, Paul gives a similar warning and he uses the words divisions and offenses. And offenses is the Greek word scandalon. It means an impediment placed in the way that would cause one to stumble or fall. It's a trap. The word scandalon was the name of the part of the trap where the bait was attached to it and it causes someone to sin. The Bible informs us of how God feels about division. In the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs chapter 6, it says there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet, that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. And then he adds, and one who sows discord or division among the brethren. One of the things that God hates, it says, is the divisive activity of a person who sows discord or division among the brethren. And I believe that God hates it because of all the damage that it causes to those who are involved. One person said it this way. There are few things that demoralize, discourage, or weaken a church as much as bickering, backbiting, and fighting among its members. And few things so effectively undermine its testimony before the world. Because of quarreling, the father's dishonored, the son is disgraced, and the testimony of God's people is discredited. And the world is turned off, and confirmed in their unbelief. In defining that which is both divisive and a hindrance, the Bible does tell us where these things begin, where they start, where do they come from anyway. James answers that question for us. In James chapter four, James declares, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, that war, in your members, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Essentially, James says that the cause of the conflicts, the cause of the quarrels, the fightings, the, which leads to divisions and so forth, it comes from selfish desire. It is a work of the flesh. Now that we know what division and hindrances are, And how God feels about them. I want you to see, secondly, Paul's warning against division. In verse 17, he says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. And he says, avoid them. When Paul exhorts the church to note those who cause division, it literally means keep your eye on those. It's the word scopio, and it carries the idea of looking at or observing something with intensity. It's from the noun form of where we get the word telescope or microscope. It means more than simply to look at something, but to examine it, to scrutinize it carefully. And the fact that Paul uses this word in the, what is called the present tense means that the, quote, scoping out is to be a continual activity implying the danger of spiritual intruders that was even present. This exhortation and this warning against things that are divisive, it not only applies within the church, but can I say to you, that applies within your home as well. There's nothing more than the devil would love to do than to divide husband and wife from one another, or to divide parents from children, etc. He is a master of division, and he loves to come in and to divide in order to conquer. And so often, the way in which he divides is he cuts off lines of communication. And when there is no communication, one person assumes something, the other person assumes something else, and they begin to fight with one another. And there is division. Note that Paul gives us an initial description concerning this division when he says that these divisions, listen carefully, they are contrary to the doctrine which you learned. Meaning that what was being suggested or what was being presented was actually counterfeit or opposed to God's word. And by the way, not just heresy and false teaching, but anything that was leading somebody astray in the sin, avoid it. Listen, in other words, Paul is saying, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what scripture teaches. There is no biblical precedent for that practice that is divisive, that is false, that is leading people astray. And we need to be discerning and aware of such things. But in addition to the warning that he has given concerning division, Paul gives instructions, and here's what he said, avoid divisions. Avoid those who cause division. Literally, it speaks of separation and conveys the idea of putting some distance between you and these who are causing these things. Steer clear of them. Reject what they teach and protect your fellow believers at the same time. Now listen. That doesn't mean that weekly, a pastor should get up into the pulpit and tell you what he's against. And there are some that do that. The next 11-week series of sermons is going to be on the things that I am against. And just they just spend this, all we know is what you don't like and what you're against. I think it's good to tell people what you're for. And we don't have to weekly go over all the lies within the world, but instead, let's proclaim and teach the truth of God's word and people will be able to clearly discern what is truth and what is error. There are those moments when we have the responsibility to clarify, to identify, to point out what is in direct opposition to the word of God. Paul instructed Timothy, who was surrounded by false teachers and idolatry. And when giving him instruction, what was Timothy to do? These people were believing old wives, fables. They were pursuing idolatry, false teaching. What's this guy supposed to do? Here's what Paul tells them to do in 2 Timothy chapter four. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead in his appearing and in his kingdom. Here's what you need to do. Preach the word. Preach the word. That's what you're supposed to be doing. If you're not doing that, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's the job. Preach the word of God. Be ready, he said, in season and out of season. Paul warns the church, hey, listen, watch out for those who would cause division. And if they're spotted, hey, steer clear of them and avoid them. But then he also gives the church ways to identify division. And this is very insightful In verse 18, he says, for those who are such, that is those who would cause division or lead other people astray, they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. That's very interesting. They serve their own belly. Who do you serve? Do you serve? Nice, pretty much. You know, you serve your own belly. What does that even mean? Here's what it means. It means those that cause division, the identifiable characteristics that are found among them, they might not always be easy to discern due to the element of deception, but when it speaks of they serve their own belly, it means they serve their own fleshly appetites. It is all about self. That's who they live to please. It's been my experience over the last 24 years to observe that divisive people are very difficult to identify because they are masters of stealth. Whispering, private one-on-one meetings are the tools of their trade. And worst of all, they don't recognize themselves to be dividers of people. They're just mm, trying to help. I'm just, I'm just here to help. If you need my help, I'm happy to help, you know, because I, I'm here and I want to help you if I can. Maybe, not really, but I want to. You know, they, they're, they're here to help by offering advice wherever they can. And what is equally unfortunate is that I've observed over the years that those who you would assume to be the most discerning are the first to fall for their deception. Why? Well, Paul points out, first of all, listen, their motives. What's the motive He says again, they don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own belly. That's the first thing you need to recognize. Who are they serving? They pretty much, they don't serve the Lord. They serve themselves. Anything that the flesh desires, be it recognition, sympathy, control, power, empathy, whatever it is, they serve themselves. And behind their attempt to cause division is self-motivation for whatever it is they want to accomplish. They are driven by self-interest and they don't really care about the church or the cause of Christ. It's pretty much, well, it's pretty much about them. They serve self. When there is division in the church, in the home, in a marriage Usually, one of the main problems that is so often overlooked or justified or masked, covered up beneath the surface, you ready for this? Self. Self. I think if most of us this morning were honest with God and with ourselves, we would say that probably the biggest problem we have is us. I mean, you gotta be honest when you say that, you know? I mean, are you, do you? Yes, it's true. The biggest problem we have is ourselves. That's what we deal with. And sometimes we want what we want regardless of others, and we can be divisive. In addition to the motives, being self motivated, self gratification, love yourself, please yourself, Paul points out the often disarming methods that they use. This is the motive itself, but what are the methods that are employed? He tells us in verse 17, here it is, by smooth words and flattering speech. They deceive the hearts of the simple. Smooth words, flattering speech. It means language used to captivate the hearer. The phrase flattering speech, you ready for this? It's where we get our English word eulogy. Eulogy. I have been the part of and served at many memorials, many celebrations of life, be they at grave sites, be they in a church. I presided over many memorial services and there is always a time when someone will give a eulogy. And I can tell you, I can't think of a time in all of the memorials that I've done and there are more than I could count when someone has ever gotten up during a eulogy and said something bad about the person. It's usually everything good. Let me tell you how, what you didn't know, this person was so this and so that. And sometimes you're like, actually I knew them and I really, I had no idea. But then there are other times when you think, I mean, it's always good stuff. I mean, we're eulogizing them. No one's saying, let me tell you what they were really like. Nobody knows this. Roll the slide. Would you just show? I mean, suddenly it's like all the bad things they ever done. No, no, no. When you're eulogizing somebody, you are saying all the wonderful things about them. And everybody just leaves thinking, what a great person. Th- those who were coming into the church and deceiving people and leading them astray into false doctrine and into sinful practices. You know how they got people on board? They flattered them. Told them what they wanted to hear. You're, you're amazing. You know, you're a really good leader. I really like your hair. You know, I really like your eyes. You know, you're this, you're that. Really? You feel that way? Wow, that's you're the best teacher I've ever heard in my entire life. Well, apparently you haven't heard very many teachers. But the, the point is, you understand, they just, they flatter you in one sense. And what happens when somebody flatters you with excessive praise? It takes you off guard. It endears you to that person and now you've allowed yourself to be endeared to them because of all the kind things they said. Well, oh, I really love that guy. Why? Because he always just tells me how awesome I am. That's why I love to be, be with them. And when the person, listen carefully, here's where the trap comes in. When the person causing division is exposed or confronted by someone who is discerning and sees it for what it is, so often that person will run to the person that they have endeared themselves to, and that person who is supposed to be the most discerning but apparently isn't will come and begin to defend that person and say, what's wrong with them? Do you think you're being a little critical? you think you're being a little judgmental? What What did Jesus say? You know, and all of these things that, that suddenly you you know, you have to deal with and when you're confronting it and that seems a little critical, that seems a little judgmental and that's their motive. It's self-motivated and this is their method and their objective and their goal is to ultimately deceive and sometimes they don't even know that that's what they're doing and sometimes they do. But to cause a subject to believe or accept false ideas about something with the implication of that one is led out of the right way into error, be it doctrinally false or maybe just a lifestyle situation that is leading them to sin. Hey man, listen, avoid that person. If they're telling you to do something that's contrary to the word of God, they're telling you to sin. What are you doing? Why are you hanging around with that? Why are you pursuing that? Do you want to stumble? Do you want to fall? Do you want to wreck everything that's good in your life? Avoid it. Hey, that's false doctrine, friend. That doesn't line up with scripture. What are you doing entertaining it? Why would you be promoting it? Why are you reposting it? That's ridiculous. Why are you saying you like it? What's to like about that which is false and leads people astray? And what ends up taking place, sadly, the trap has been baited. It's been set. It's been shut. The person's deceived, taken in, completely resulting in being led astray. And division follows. And those who are susceptible to it, Paul says, they deceive the hearts of the simple, the well-intended, the the ones that have, maybe they just have a genuine heart to serve, or or they just really, you know, are, are blessed that someone, Realizes their potential and wants them to be there and sees the need, and and all of these things you can be drawn in. And what happens, the heart of the simple speaks of the unsuspecting and the naive, and they get brought in. You know, there's an example of this in the Old Testament. I think in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter nine, nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan. Man, they are just taking one territory after another, walls of Jericho fall down, minor setback with Ai, but then they just keep rolling keep rolling, keep taking land that God promised. But there was a group called the Gibeonites. And this says they worked more craftily than all the other nations. And they came and they approached Joshua and the leaders and the people. And they pretended to be ambassadors. You remember that? During their interview, their clothes were all raggedy, torn up. They brought moldy bread. Their shoes were worn out. I mean, they just looked worked. And they showed up to Joshua and the people. And they said, hey, we've come from a really far country. Notice our bread. And it's interesting. They kept drawing attention to certain things. Look at our clothes. Um, Look at our bread. What? what, Okay. I mean, they kept drawing away from the facts. And then, and then they flattered them. Hey, we've heard about you guys. We, the word is out about you guys. In fact, We heard about how you defeated some people. And the interesting, they go back to the time of Moses on the other side of the Jordan. Really? You've heard about us? What, what did you hear? Heard you're a great leader. Really? Who? Oh, that's disarming. Um, What what else have you heard? Now we heard you guys are conquering territory. God is with you. The glory of the Lord. And it says they didn't seek the Lord. They didn't ask his counsel. Joshua said, man, these guys are good guys. Hey, you know what? Come on, bring it in. Bring it in. Come on, come on. They made a covenant with them. And guess what they found out? They lived right around the corner. They lied, they deceived. They set them up with deceptive words of flattery and smooth speech and even had the props to show how sincerely they were liars and they were deceived. Folks, there's a difference between praise and flattery. Praise is specific to an action, where flattery is adulation without a cause. Uh, Praise intends to encourage, to build up, wherein flattery intends to deceive and further an agenda. Divisive people, whether they be false teachers or otherwise, here's here's what they do. Someone said this, they keep their people skills polished at a very high gloss. They instinctively will find trusting people in positions of influence, and then they will play to their weaknesses. Let me give you an example. If it's pride, they'll flatter them. If it's fear, they reinforce a sense of control. If it's insecurity, they make them feel important. And if it's despair, they promise the impossible. To avoid division, we have to keep our eyes open we discern both motive and method. And then Paul adds, how do we respond? How do we protect ourselves and prevent division? He tells us in verse 19, he says, for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. And I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. The best way to prevent succumbing to the deception of division, it's right here. Obedience to the word of God. Amen. When you know the truth, when a lie presents itself, you'll be able to identify it. And in that moment, you have a choice whether to obey the word Or to disobey the word and suffer the consequences of it. If listening and submitting to that which is heard. Listen, the believers in Rome, Paul was thankful they were protected against false teachers by their obedience to Christ and the truth of his gospel. Not only did their obedience protect them, but it helped other believers who were watching their example. They were encouraged by the reputation of their godliness. Obedience to the word of God. What wonderful news that must have been to the apostle Paul. We will be tempted to cave into the pressure of the culture, to believe the lies that are presented and accepted by so many, or to be deceived by the means of the mind-numbing desensitization. But walking in obedience to the word of God is a safeguard to the present dangers that surround us. Walking in obedience to God's word will enable us to be wise in what is good and innocent concerning what is evil. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 119, verse 11, a wonderful verse. He said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Having God's word memorized, having God's word meditated upon, knowing it, it's a part of you. When sin presents itself or something that could potentially lead you astray, God's word, you will be able to recall it and then you will be able to avoid deception and division. Walking in obedience to the word of God. Perhaps ask yourself this morning, right now, by way of personal application, are you walking in obedience to God's word for your life? Have you begun to go down the path of those old friends and those old acquaintances perhaps that are leading you astray, but you're justifying it because, you know, I'm trying to reach them, but you're not reaching them. But they've reached you. And you're not pulling them up, but they are pulling you down. Are you walking in obedience to the word of God? If you're not, listen, you walk in disobedience to the word of God, they already know you compromised it. They already know it's not real to you. But when you walk in obedience to God's word, it makes a significant difference and an impact in your life and in theirs. Are you walking in obedience to the word of God? Are you, and not just in these things, but what about in in doctrine? Do you know what the Bible says? Do you study the word of God? Are you walking in obedience to it? It makes all the difference in the world. And then Paul adds, and I love this verse 20, this powerful promise. I really, you'll see. Here it says, and the God of peace will crush. I love that word. In in the Greek and in the English, crush Satan under your feet shortly. It means obliterate, annihilate into nothing. Amen to that, right? <laughs> you like that verse too. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. It's very interesting that This is the first mention of Satan in this entire epistle, right at the end. And Paul assures the faithful believers that they can look forward to the day when spiritual warfare will be over. It's really hard to imagine that in the world in which we live right now as a Christian. Spiritual warfare done? There's not going to be any more. I mean, there's coming a day when we're not going to battle the flesh, the world, the devil. That's going to end. It's going to end one day. The war going to be over. We're going to lay down our weapons and we're going to receive a crown. I mean, but until that time, we fight. Until that time, we battle. But there is coming a day. And this this is not just a suggestion. This is actually a promise for God's people to hold on to. One day, the God of peace is going to ultimately crush, and destroy forever the devil. And what a day that will be. Amen. And so in the meantime, we continue to trust in the Lord and hold fast to these promises. The next time that you spot something that potentially appears divisive in whatever context you might be in, ask these questions. Does what I am hearing agree with scripture? Does what I am hearing honor my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Does what I am hearing help me to become more godly? Does what I am hearing help me? And what I am hearing cause me to think more highly of my fellow believers? These are questions I think that will assist us. As we wrap this letter up, Paul gives greetings from his friends who were with him At the time that this letter was being written to the Romans, he begins with a very familiar name, Timothy. Timothy. If you don't know who Timothy was, I encourage you to read the book of Acts, chapter 14, then into Acts 16. On Paul's first missionary journey, he went into Timothy's town of Derbe and Lystra, and he proclaimed the gospel, and the people were so upset as paul and barnabas were there and they were speaking out against their false gods when they tried to sacrifice to paul and barnabas thought they were the gods come down among them it says after that they one minute they were wanting to worship paul the next minute they dragged him outside the city and were stoning him to death and they left him there it says that the disciples gathered around him and he revived and then he went right back into the city and continued to preach No doubt that made a tremendous impact upon Timothy. The next time Paul came through on his second missionary journey, he enlisted Timothy to assist him. And they developed a relationship that was like father and son. Paul referred to him. He said, I have no one who is as like-minded with me like Timothy. He's my son in the faith. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. They're called first and second Timothy. They're pastoral epistles, which Titus is included in that list of pastoral epistles, but they're powerful and you can see the relationship that they had. But then he lists some other names here. Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Tertius was the one whom Paul was dictating his words to. He was writing it down and he's the one who sent the letter. He said, hey, by the way, I'm in here too. I just want to let you know I'm here. I greet you. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, he's the treasurer of the city, greets you. Good guy to have on the team. Quartus, he's a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then finally, folks, here's where we will end. There is a benediction from Paul. The closing statements, and it's powerful. He says in verse 25, now to him who is Able. I really love that. Just that, that right there. Now to him who is able. Able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations. According to the commandment of the everlasting God, For obedience to the faith, to God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever, amen. Can I just say to you, time does not allow, but this right here, these few verses are so packed with truth and power He first of all says that God is able, to him who is able to establish you. How was it that the church was going to be established? And by the way, when it speaks the word established, it is translated, it's mentioned 10 times in the New Testament, and it means settled or a stable spiritual condition. What would make the church stable, solid, strong? Well, I'll tell you, amazing programs, it's going to make God establish you through the programs that we have started and make you strong. Nope, it doesn't say that. Through the amazing show that we'll put on every week, from no, no, it doesn't say that either. Through the charismatic personalities of those who grace the platform, no, no. You say, well, what does it say? Through the gospel, through the preaching of Jesus Christ. People wanting to make the church strong. People wanting to make the church stable. How does that happen? It happens through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. It's not rocket science. It's Bible knowledge. I mean, this is, this is what the Bible says. Why do we divert from that? Why do we get away from that? Why don't we just stick to that so the church can be stable? I don't know. I just know what we're going to do. This is what we do. We want people to be stable in their walk with the Lord, stable in their marriage, stable in raising their kids, stable on the job. How are you going to do that? By preaching and teaching God's word. He says here, the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news. It's from where we get our words evangelist, evangel, evangelical, comes from the words gospel used 93 times in the Bible, exclusively in the New Testament. And the key to understanding the gospel or the good news, you got to know what the bad news is. You can't appreciate the good news unless you know what the bad news is. So let me give you the bad news first. And here's the bad news. Every single person who has ever been born, every single person in this room, all of us included, and in the fellowship and outside, every person... Born with a sin nature, born in sin, just for the sake of experiment. Anybody here this morning? Just by a show of hands, if you are perfect, (laughs) just slip your hand up, and we will. I'm not. I'm just saying, if you are, I just slip your slip your hand up, and we'll be happy to uh, realize that. You're not because no one is. No one's perfect. Guys, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And listen to live in sin, to die in our sins, without responding to the gospel, listen carefully, is to enter into eternity and to be separated from God forever in a place that Jesus described where the fire is not quenched, where the worm does not die, where there is eternal cognizance of your rejection of God, you can feel pain and there is outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place reserved for the devil and his angels. It's called hell, That's what happens to the person who dies in their sins eternally. They spend their eternity in a real place called hell. And without Jesus, that's exactly where we are on our way to. We are under the wrath of God. And here's the bad news. I can't fix that on my own. I can't fix it by being a good person or checking off the box that I went to church or I dug a well in Africa or I did this philanthropy over here. I gave to that cause there. None of those things can save you. Nothing. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. That is the bad news. I'm completely destitute apart from salvation in and of myself. Bad news. Game over. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that while we were dead, (laughs) In our trespasses and sins, God sent his own son who lived a perfect, spotless, sinless, blameless life. He went to the cross and he died the death we deserve to die. And he took upon himself all the wrath, all the shame, all the destruction, all the shame, all of it. He bore it all on his shoulders when he died in our place, the sins of the whole world were laid upon Christ. He paid the price for our sins. And by placing our faith in trust in what he accomplished on our behalf, we can be saved. We can be justified just as if we never sinned, redeemed by the blood of Christ. We can be saved. We can know that when we take our last breath here on this planet, we will take our first breath in heaven and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Folks, there is an alternative. There's heaven. That's the great news. Nothing I could do to deserve it. Nothing I could do to earn it. All that I can do is receive it, saved By grace, through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And so God tells us clearly that he loves us and God not only tells us this, but he demonstrates it. No greater demonstration, no greater love has ever been demonstrated than Jesus dying in our place. And responding to that is good news. You know, people are right now in this moment very aware of their own mortality. I was standing right here closing a service, and I was informed by one of our leaders here Kobe Bryant just died in a plane crash with his daughter in a helicopter crash. I just, no, it, it can't be right. That seems unthinkable. That couldn't have happened and then as the day unfolded and things began to come out suddenly we were the world was made aware of this tragedy and we we just grieved and we mourned and the world was suddenly aware that death is the equalizer regardless of what your status is in life how wealthy you are, how gifted you are. Every single one of us at some point, if Jesus doesn't come for us first in the rapture, we'll have an appointment with death. We don't know what the rest of this day holds. We don't have a guarantee on the rest of this day, but you can have a guarantee on eternity in heaven. The Bible says, these things we have written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. And in that moment, all of the world, I find it interesting. We are one week since this tragedy. And you find the comments and they are heartfelt and you mourn. But everybody, even those who would not claim to believe in the gospel, suddenly, well, we know you're in a better place. We know, we, we're so glad that you're, and people who would never claim to be Christians suddenly want to believe that there is a real, a better place that you can, as they say, rest in peace. Friend, listen, the only way anybody rests in peace is if they know the Prince of Peace. There is no other way. And what happens is the world is suddenly aware of their own mortality. It's, it's almost like the the veil is, is pulled back and you can see that could be me. And I need to think about what would happen if that was me, but what, what inevitably happens? People just move on. We just keep, we just keep, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I get as far away from that as I can. And we just keep, we keep going on. We don't deal with the reality that, that life, the, the, the reality of the brevity of life. Have you responded to the good news? Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're going to be with Jesus for eternity? There is a real place called heaven. It's a place, the Bible says, of no mores, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more sin. Where the glory of God outshines the sun, God's glory is the light. I pray that you have that assurance. And if you don't, if we've gone through 16 chapters of Romans and you don't know yet, today could be your opportunity. And it may be the only one you have. It's been reported, you've heard it. Kobe Bryant and his daughter went to church before they got on the helicopter. Guaranteed of what? What are are we guaranteed of? Friends, you can know that you have eternal life. Respond to the good news today. God loves you. He died to prove it. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for communion? And we'll close the service today. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the hope that we have, the hope of heaven. It is a living hope, your word says. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I would ask this morning that if there are any here who simply have known about you in stories that they've heard or in a service they attended, but they don't yet know you, that today would be the day that they would acknowledge their sin, repent of it, turn to you, Lord, and be saved, And so his eyes are closed and heads are bowed today. If there's anybody here at all, even one person who can hear what I'm saying today and you're not yet a Christian, but you would like to be. You realize that you've sinned, that you need a savior. And Jesus is that savior. Would you raise your hand up high? I would love to pray for you today. Anybody at all here in this room say, I I don't know. I don't have the hope, I don't have the assurance, but I, I, would, I would like to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am going to heaven. Anybody at all this morning, just raise your hand up high. I just want to pray for you today. Acknowledging your need for a savior. Father, thank you today for salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope of heaven. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity now to remember you and what you accomplish through taking communion. And Lord, we pray that you would um, remind us once again of what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close out with service here today, the men are gonna come forward. And they're gonna pass out the elements of communion to you. And you know, every time that I take communion, I'm always reminded of what Jesus saved me out of and what he's brought me into and where I'm ultimately going to be. I'm so grateful. I just I always think about not for too long but where I would be if it wasn't for Jesus. I would not be here. I would not be serving anybody communion. Um, I, I wouldn't be here. It's the grace of God. And I'm just I'm so thankful for salvation today. And I pray that we would have a fresh reminder of who he is and what he's done for us. So let's worship and we'll take communion together.